From Moby.co, this is the Flagship Pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and all the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this time and a week of just roller coastery mayhem. We started off this week with yes, kind of confusing midterms, at least from the market's perspective. Then we got into a historic crash in crypto with FDX, now filing for bankruptcy as Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried, at this moment right here, right now, uh, is stepping down as CEO. And then also, of course, the CPI came out with inflation being just a little bit lower than expected, causing the market to absolutely rip upwards on the back half of this week. It's, I don't even know where to start here. To help me unpack just a wild week in the markets, uh, as always, I am joined by Justin Kramer, CEO and co-founder of Moby.co here. Justin, man, how do I even, how, how do I even start making sense of this? Where do we even start here, dude? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack. The crypto you know, Saga is taking over the news right now as well as it should. Um, it's it's pretty nuts. Um, but past that, there's a lot more going on. There's finally some good no- news with inflation, which will then ultimately lead to potentially lower interest rates, um, more corporate earnings, just kind of overall more mayhem in the markets. Uh, we'll talk through the election um, and, you know, where any other questions our users have, we'll uh, we'll get through it as well. Absolutely. And Justin, as we sort of like begin unpacking this, I guess the best thing to do is just go in chronological order, which is immediately, let's just start unpacking what happened with FTX first, because it is just absolutely incredible watching um, the second biggest crypto exchange in the world melt down in real time. They just filed for bankruptcy. Um, let's go all the way back to the beginning. So... Uh, this actually started with Binance really saying, hey, we're going to go ahead and bail on our position in the FTT token because there's liquidity. We're worried about liquidity concerns over at FTX. Um, We're going to get out of here. The very next day, Binance says they're going to buy FTX. The whole time, SBF and the FTX team are saying, hey, no, 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 we're solvent. We're good. We're fine. Um, Bitcoin's, because of all that, because of all that fallout, what, Bitcoin is down now, uh, into the 1600s, potentially going down even lower. How do you even make sense of the kind of meltdown like this, Justin? Like, is this is this the crypto market just capitulating in the bear market, or is this just kind of a temporary blip? This is kind of like, I mean, not to the same extent, but this is kind of crypto's, you know, Lehman moment, if you will. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, uh, either you're not old enough or just weren't paying attention to the industry back in, you know, 07, 08, uh, Lehman Brothers went under seemingly like almost overnight. Uh, because they had so much bad credit on their books from the subprime mortgage crisis, which ultimately led to the you know that great recession back in 2007-2008. Um, and it's kind of a similar situation we're seeing here now, where instead of bad credit on their balance sheet, uh, it was just a, a lack of liquidity. Um, so basically, you know, at, at a super high level, these exchanges, whether it's stock exchanges, crypto exchanges, anything that's providing liquidity uh, for markets, needs to have some sort of underlying liquidity backing it. So what I mean by that, for example, is, you know, if you're on Robinhood, which is probably a little bit more relatable, uh, every day people put money into Robinhood and they take money out of Robinhood. By law, you're required to have a certain amount of cash on head to to handle the withdrawals. And usually it's a it's a pretty high amount so that if your average daily withdrawals, say, are like a million bucks, you need to have like, you know, five, 10, 20 million bucks on hand for big, big withdrawal days. And that's typically the rules and how banks are regulated in exchanges. FTX is not a regulated entity. And that's kind of what is underlying all of this is that they don't have the liquidity on hand to handle like a run on their tokens. So this all started 
when there was a little bit of banter between them and Binance over Twitter. And the CEO of Binance basically said that they were going to be liquidating a lot of their position in FTX's token, FTT, which is basically like the stablecoin of their network. From there, this kind of led to like this crazy cascading effect where everyone just started very quickly taking their money out of it, uh, out of FTX's exchange, which led to this really, really big liquidity crunch. And then FTX ultimately didn't have the money to to handle a lot of these withdrawals and the value of their token basically collapsed almost overnight. And when their CEO came out later uh, in the week um, and kind of reported on what happened, he basically said that they thought they had, you know, five to 10 times the average daily liquidity needed for the withdrawals when in actuality it was 0.8x, which... I mean, that is just not a mistake. That's that's negligence or fraud. At the end of the day, that's what it is. And because it's based in the Bahamas and because it's not a regulated entity, that he can get away with that. Uh, and he's been getting away with it for years. And it's kind of was a now now that like everyone's seeing what's going on, it was more or less a house of cards or a Ponzi scheme. Um, from an outside investor's point of view, there's no way we can know this. We don't have a look at their liquidity. We don't have a look at their way of their books. These are just fundamental risks that you're investing in without actually having any idea what's going on and because they're not regulated you know they don't really have to they can do whatever they want they can say anything and no one there's no repercussions um and that's basically what happened with ftx and almost overnight you saw a business that was worth billions and billions of dollars go out of business in 24 hours i mean it just it shows the underlying fragility of the crypto ecosystem and honestly this is this is really bad, obviously, but what I think is even worse is long term, it ultimately makes people's confidence in the crypto ecosystem as one of the largest exchanges in this in the system just really get diminished. Um, I'm happy to talk through kind of long term outlook for crypto as well, but that that's really at a high level kind of what happened and just shows, you know, that none of these companies and coins are, are really safe, even if you think they are. And I guess one thing, too, we need to get into real fast as well, before we get to the long-term outcomes, like, is there's also worries about BlockFi, too, right? Like, BlockFi just paused transactions, paused withdrawals as contagion risk is starting to, you know, spread a little bit. This all really kicked off earlier this year with Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO, the former now CEO of FTX, being like, okay, I'm going to consolidate the crypto industry under me so it can go ahead and take out Binance. Uh, clearly over-leveraged, clearly put a lot of dubious, you know, financial risks in play and just you know on the back of alameda just completely fell apart but now blockfi is positive withdrawals too blockfi was obviously in a lot of trouble before how bad is the contagion going to be you think here justin yeah the the contagion event can be pretty bad because this can start cascading to other other entities so to your point the blockfi stuff blockfi was having its own liquidity issues earlier this year and now you're just seeing this massive distrust of inherent systems like the first thing I was thinking of is like, you know, money where like where I held my own assets, like, are those safe? And so like if that's your first inkling, people are going to start taking money away from less safe networks. You know, say, for example, if you bank a Bank of America Chase, you know, like even if you freaked out at first, you know, it's fine. Or if not, the government can come in and there's, you know, there's regulated entities to help you get liquidity. God forbid they go out of business. But for BlockFi, for some of these like neo banks that are much much like less regulated or just don't have the financial security of one of some of these larger institutions, 
that's where people are going to take their money out of first. So there's, you know, obviously BlockFi saw a massive amount of withdrawal start in their system, and they probably didn't have anywhere near enough cash on hand to cover it. And so they had to pause withdrawals until they could probably raise the liquidity needed or until withdrawal requests came down. But once you start limiting withdrawals, that's when your, your business is done. I mean, imagine going to Chase or Bank of America and trying to take money out of your debit account, and they say you can't. I mean, you'd be done. You'd never bank there ever again. Um, as soon as you're able to take your money out, you'd take it out and you'd, you'd close out the account. So that's happening at BlockFi. It's happening at um, FTX, clearly. Coinbase issued a statement saying that like, basically they were fine, but this is going to start spilling over into other parts of the crypto ecosystem. Uh, and then frankly, it's, it's pretty disheartening. Um, and it's going to ultimately put a lot of distrust, not only in the exchanges, but in underlying tokens themselves, because... At the end of the day, these are subject to people's building them via algorithms. It's subject to, you know, a ton of inherent risk that people don't realize. And at any point, I mean, it clearly can be eroded very, very quickly. And that's one of those things, too. So it's just a way of essentially extending crypto winter, right? Because if anything, this kind of is while this erodes trust in underlying institutions, it also shows us who's going to actually be strong during this. So it's kind of, with the CPI, we're seeing prices stabilize a little bit as people jump back into risk on assets. Like we're, uh, we're getting pretty confident about maybe this being a temporary blip, but you're right, Justin, the actual issue is this is not over. Like with block five pausing withdrawals, that's a huge, huge negative sign. So it's not just going to be FTX because remember FTX was consolidating a lot around their industry as well. I mean, Solana has recovered a bit, but it's still down 50 50% on the week because Solana was heavily, heavily backed by FTX. So I don't think Solana is going to go down or anything, but Solana has a lot of ground to recover once the dust settles from all of this, once, you know, bankruptcy has gone through and we see just exactly how poorly this was managed, right? Sorry, say that again? And ju just uh, just saying, like, there's this is probably far from over, right? Do you think BlockFi is going to be like the last contagion risk or do you, do you see any potential for other ones potentially going down a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this. There, there. I think anything, like nothing, is out of play right now. Any single coin, any single crypto company, if they're per, if they're some sort of provider of liquidity, and even if they're not, if they're just doing business in the crypto ecosystem, if there's enough trust that's eroded from consumers and from investors, no business is safe. Honestly, um, I think from day one we've been telling all of our users that these are highly, highly leveraged bets. You're Taking a very, very small position with outsized, like an outsized risk and reward system. So basically, you put in a little bit of money, knowing it could very well likely go to zero, but the upside is, you know, infinity in theory. Um, that's exactly the approach that you need to be taking here. And you shouldn't be surprised when some of these tokens, when some of these ventures go to zero. These are way, way in their early stages. We haven't really seen any true applications in the crypto ecosystem over the last decade for consumers that has underlying inherent value. But this is just going to continue to happen more and more. And it's been playing out over the last decade. And frankly, it's a little surprising when people, uh, when people, when it catches people off guard. Exactly. That's the main thing, too, the idea that people get caught off guard by this when this has been kind of priced in forever. I mean, the problem is the way people talk about crypto and the problem is people get used to the insane gains they got during the bull runs of like 2020 to 2021. Right. Like we you and me, we've been in this ever since uh, the like November of last year. We are in year one of this entire bear period because we've been doing analysis 
the entire time. Like we haven't been like poking our heads and we've been like in here watching these charts go up and down for various projects. So it's a, it's a tough moment, but it's what, again, plays out to the whole philosophy folks where your whole goal here as an investor in any space is to never overextend yourself, never buy what you would have to be a forced seller for, stay the course, buy low, sell high, right? So this is a great period to start really dollar cost averaging back in to these coins as well. But again, the bottom is not in, um, I mean, potentially the bottom could have been 15k. It's really hard to say how much the CPI is supporting everything right now and how everyone's going to be forgiven if the market continues to rip like this. So rather than speculate on that, just remember, keep safe. And Justin, that kind of is a good segue into the opposite land that is the stock market this week as the CPI came out and just blew everyone away. Justin, is that peak inflation? Are we done here? Like, did Jerome Powell save the world? What's going on? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely don't think we're out of the, the woods yet by any mean. I mean, there there's an interesting issue because if you look at core CPI, it definitely like is starting to look like it's peaking slash decreasing. Um, but A, it's not over. And B, that does negate some of the largest like incremental factors in inflation, which is food and energy. And core strips it out because like food and energy is highly volatile and is subject to change and according to some economists, isn't a true measure of inflation. However, you know, food and energy is basically what runs the world if you think about it. Like, food feeds us and we can't survive without food and we can't get and do anything without energy. So if you look at those and you, like, is it fair to strip those out? Hard to say, um, but higher rates are just gonna make those sectors of the economy more expensive. Um, we said before, like farming, which feeds us, is run on $500 billion worth of debt. If you raise rates, farming just becomes more expensive. The same thing is in energy and the same thing is in utilities. These massive energy companies who are drilling wells, supplying us with oil and, and transporting gas around the world, they run on debt. So you increase the price of debt, it's going to increase the price of gas for the end consumer. Um, so I don't think we're out of the woods by any means. If the Fed comes out and says they're going to start slowing the the increasing rates, like decreasing the, the rate at which they're increasing, then I think that will definitely help. Uh, it'll definitely help the markets at the very least just kind of see that some relief is coming. But until rate increases, like the peak of rate increases is a tangible distance away, I still think there's more volatility to come. Um, Q3 earnings, for example, also did not they, they didn't really come in that bad. I mean, tech wasn't great, but the rest of the industries weren't that affected by higher rates yet. If they keep raising rates for another, you know, quarter, uh, pair that with just like decreases in consumer confidence. If Q4 earnings come out next year and they're awful, I mean, it's just going to potentially put us into a, um, a deeper recession if we're not in one already. Um, so long story short, Economic outlook, I still think, is pretty poor. Market outlook, starting to get into the warmer territory, but there's still going to be more volatility to come for sure. Okay, five-second uh, five spot bet question, Justin. Are you back to risk on yet, or are you still waiting that out? I mean, we can still we can add to our risk on positions, and I mean, we've been continuing to do that even a month, two months ago, as uh, as like positions have just been so sold off and so depressed on a valuation basis that it's hard not to add to them. But we're not, you know, throwing all of our chips back in the basket and saying, hey, like, the, you know, we're, we hit bottom. We're only going up from here. Yesterday's move upward uh, was amazing. I mean, it was great to see that you're just seeing how much money's on the sidelines ready to be deployed back into the markets. Um, but by no means 
like I said, is this over? If you want to average into positions that, you know, are down huge or, or at low valuations or enter new positions, I, I think you should, if you haven't been doing that already, you should have been. Um, but again, this is, uh, the, the environment hasn't changed much to my opinion. Yeah, and that's the most important thing too, audience. Don't believe anyone saying this is the bottom. Don't believe anyone saying, okay, throw all your all your chips back in, especially in the crypto space, because you may or this is this could play out exactly the same way it did uh, July into August, right? Where the CPI came out in August and it was a little bit lower than anybody everybody expected. Inflation was still up, but people got very excited off of very very low gas prices, and we had a nice, really really fun bear market rally that ran up throughout August. Then the CPI dropped in September, knocked everyone back down to reality. The exact same thing can happen in December. And so we could be on this little bit of a seesaw with the primary driver of the like market sentiment being the CPI. If it comes back, if we see like, we're going to have to see two to three quarters of significant CPI um, decreases in order for us to be confident. Not, it's not necessarily not over. It could easily be over. But for everyone saying like, oh, this is the bottom, this is the bottom, like no one actually knows. And I think that's the biggest distinction I want to draw is that this very well may be the bottom. We may be on the other side of this, but no one can definitively say either way. So everything has to be like risk adjusted. Do we think there's a good chance we're close to the bottom? I think we're we're close and there's no reason to try not time it as close as possible. And, you know, this very well may be a rally upwards for the next X amount of years. Um, but by, by sit, calling this the bottom, saying it's definitive, that's where I think a lot of people are, are being misled right now. And even if it is actually the bottom two audience, one thing to really keep in mind is that a lot of us, you know, are on the younger side. We're in the under 40s where our primary investing life happened during this unprecedented bull run from 2010 to 2021, right? We saw the craziest amount of growth in the stock market in history, driven mainly by the NASDAQ, right? There is no reason to believe that is going to continue um, because what we have seen from COVID is cascading crises. The entire world economy shuts down in March 2020. That leads to supply shocks, which are still being worked through. That leads to inflation, which leads to higher interest rates. One thing Justin and I keep talking about is the fact that our entire food supply is fueled so heavily by debt. The last time interest rates were this high, the debt to GDP ratio was what, Justin? Not even 10% of what it is now we have no idea what kind of gunk is going to be in the world uh, monetary system moving forward even if the fed gets this stuff under control the slowdown could be in for ages and we'll see really slow growth on the back of you know not a collapse or anything but a really really heavy slowdown in how we make food and how that all works out just because of the amount of debt that's fueling everything so a lot of moving parts we have no idea where this is going especially because Every, we're in a bizarre world right now. Everything that's supposed to happen is not happening, with which, uh, Justin, I'm just going to jump into the segue about your thoughts about the U.S. midterm election. Um, every midterm in history has been, you get a presidential election, and that president gets his ass kicked in the midterms. Period. End of sentence. Um, while it looks like the House is going to be flipped to the Republican Party, it's going to be, you know, barely done so. And the Democrats are looking pretty uh, likely to hold the Senate. Uh, last time this happened, Justin, when a president in their first term held on to the Senate and only barely lost the House. That was FDR in the 1930s. Uh, how's the, uh, like you put out a good piece of research on Tuesday saying how the markets are going to react to uh, every outcome of the U.S. midterms. Looking at this now, how are you feeling about it, dude? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting right now because with the, the midterms specifically, a lot of this is a result, honestly, of just like 
the distrust or, or dislike rather of Trump, not necessarily the Republican Party. So when you have a lot of these candidates that were Trump backed um, and embracing kind of his like pro MAGA uh, agenda, we saw directly from voters that that is not what people want. We had a lot of people not even voting for Democrats, but just voting against Trump esque type candidates, which speaks a lot, especially when you see, you know, DeSantis down in Florida with just kind of like this massive overall win. It just, you know, nothing is done at all until it's done. Um, but it's interesting that with Biden's approval rating being so low with the Democrats holding on, really, to me, speaks volumes about, you know, the country just doesn't want Trump given everything that he's done. I mean, just morally, I'm totally on board with that with my personal views, which I try not to to give too much on this podcast. Um, but it's it's very interesting. Uh, to your point, this hasn't happened in, you know, 50 plus years um, and by no means should it have happened. So it really just shows the the status of where we are uh, and then ultimately how that Im- impacts policy. Uh, more pro-Democrat things has a better chance of getting pushed. We'll, we'll still likely be in some sort of stalemate. Um, but, you know, clean energy, China-based stocks, uh, think about things that Democrats are either not as hard on or, or are more pro those will continue to to have a little bit more of tailwinds um, just from a, a political sense. And audience, to give you a sense of those numbers, too, to what Justin's talking about, I need you to go back to the last time Ron DeSantis was elected governor of Florida. He barely eked out that victory. I think he got uh, he won by literally a point. Uh, he absolutely flummoxed his, his Democratic opponent by a factor. I think it was 10 points. It may have even been 20. I looked at the chart and then I lost it. You know how it goes. But a huge increase in his margins and Marco Rubio holding on when he really shouldn't have shows that like they've consolidated power down there. And that's going to kind of be the new core of the Republican Party, which in a lot of ways puts Republicans in a difficult position given that Trump's base is still so strong too. We're going to see a, a a house divided in the Republican Party for a hot second here. And again, like Justin said, we keep our political views close to the chest. I'm just the guy reading you the numbers here, y'all. So a really interesting period um, that allowed, you know, Joe Biden to become the most effective Democratic president since literally FDR. Not not saying that he's FDR 2.0. He hasn't done nearly enough to earn that title whether you think that would be a good thing or a bad thing, but just a wild, wild period in democratic politics when a president with an approval rating as low as Joe Biden can pull off kind of maybe not even losing a house in Congress. Regardless, we've never seen the House of Representatives this close before, so uh, it's going to be a very interesting period in American politics. I have no idea what Congress is going to do for the next two years, but it's going to be wild, and I do not want to be a Republican strategist right now because that's a really, really tough coalition to manage right now like i don't think it's it, it looks pretty fractury to me whereas uh, a lot of folks in like the democratic senate managed to recapture the obama 2012 coalition so a lot to see here interesting period moving forward um but you, you spoke to it justin and like one of our niche one of our bigger picks within our stock zone actually did pretty well on the back of that and that's neo um chinese ev stock up 10 percent this week off of really good earnings improved relations to china hopefully improved production and you know at least a democratic senate which will mean that ev subsidies won't get absolutely nuked what are your thoughts on uh, your thesis on neo so far justin with them up you know pretty decently off of earnings like i mean not as good as rivian but rivian is you know coming from a much lower spot yeah, I mean, with Neo specifically, it's not that necessarily like the Democrats are pro-China. I mean, they're not, but you've heard Biden's stance on it. Uh, it's just that they're not as tough on China as Trump 
was. So ultimately, I think if the Democrats or sorry, the Republicans rather came into came into more of a stronghold within Congress and the House, uh, you would see like this strong pushback on a lot of the regulatory issues that's going on with Chinese listed stocks here in the U.S., whereas with not as much of a you know a heavy win there and a sweeping victory as they thought they would get, that's going to put a little bit of pressure on, or the lack of pressure rather, on Chinese companies, which is ultimately helps them out. Um, so I think that ultimately helps NEO. And then uh, China, it looks like they're starting to take back um, a little bit of their, you know, zero COVID policy, which helps ultimately NEO a ton because all of their production is done in China. So if there is a little bit more leeway there, they don't have to shut down their production facilities. They'll be able to to meet demand a little bit more. And then ultimately, if they don't get delisted in the US, those are two huge tailwinds for them going forward. Exactly. And that delisting risk is always going to be there, especially with, you know, China watching the whole situation in Ukraine and wondering if it's time to go uh, straight up boogaloo on Taiwan, right? Um, there's no indication that's going to happen, but that's always going to be a risk moving forward, especially as President Xi has now really consolidated power over there, thanks to the latest um, CC Chinese Communist Party Congress. So it's not quite a dictatorship, but, it, you know, when we were kids in the 90s, China had this cool period of like almost, almost... Uh, pushing towards more of a, a democratic model. But now Xi Jinping has put a nifty little stop to that being the most sort of like consolidated ruler since Mao, right? So that'll be very interesting to see. Like he can do whatever he wants. And if he decides, okay, it's time to, you know, flip the entire world economy on its head and take out Taiwan, we'll just have to see. But there's going to be a lot of risks there moving forward, regardless of who's in power, right? So a lot to watch there. But one thing, Justin, we did talk about very briefly was food prices as well, um, to get sort of into like the global conflict scene as well. Like it's looking like the Ukrainian army's encirclement of the town of Kherson down in Ukraine, right? Um, it has completed. Like the Russian army is trying to retreat 25,000 troops out of a very key strategic area in the south of Ukraine, and the Ukrainian army has blown up every bridge and basically encircled these people. So a huge like stranglehold moment is kind of unfolding in Ukraine right now. And if they manage to lock that in, that puts us in a much stronger position for this to end way quicker, and therefore for global food trade to get back on track as well. Because remember, we're talking about two of the two of the biggest wheat producers in the whole world you know, in too busy fighting each other to farm right now. So some really encouraging signs all around. But again, we are, as always, in the mixed signals zone here in this economy. But it's just been a very, very exciting roller coaster so far. Crypto contagion's not completely over or anything. The CPI may not, the good times in the CPI may not last, like e-commerce is hurting real bad no matter what. So just a lot to consider. Justin, how do you make sense of all of this though? Like how should we be investing moving forward? Should we still be just keeping it defensive or how can we sort of start beginning to play this if we're thinking a little bit more risky as some positive signs are starting to pop through in the market? Yeah, I think similar to what we talked about before, just continuing to be defensive, but have aggressive, uh, or add to your aggressive parts of your portfolio. Um, for a while now, we've held this whole year basically. We've held like pretty large chunks of our positions in energy uh, and more defensive names, and those have obviously rallied and done extremely well this year. And we're going to continue to hold those, especially names that should do well even in decreasing oil price environments. But we've continued and will continue to add to our tech names to other high growth names that have you know a sense of long term profitability. Uh, you talked about Rivian. I mean, like we like the company, we love the product, but they are burning almost $2 billion a quarter and they have 14 to $15 billion of cash on hand. So it's like, 
you know, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, wasn't as much of a concern because getting money was so easy. Now with higher rates, less liquidity, you know, I, I don't think they're going to go out of business, but unless they raise more capital via equity or debt markets next year, they're going to go out of business and which becomes now much more of a concern. So I think if you're going to invest in companies like that, you need to realize that no one is, no one is not safe, for example, like people can go, these massive companies can go out of business. They've just been well capitalized in a very unique decade. Um, but those are inherent risks that now is being baked into their valuation in a way it never was before. So long-winded way of saying, we want to continue to take positions in companies we fundamentally believe in, but we need to be taking or understanding what the risks are given capital constraints, long-term profitability. Um, this is going to be marked the next few years as companies that actually make money, not just companies that have cool products. Hell yeah, dude. Speaking of which, we're literally two minutes from the end here, two minutes from time. So I got to just jump on this one real fast. Um, in a company all hands, literally yesterday, Elon Musk said that bankruptcy wasn't out of the question for Twitter. Uh, speaking of companies that go out of business real soon, um, how long do you think Twitter has left to live, dude? Uh, I doubt they go out of business. I know Elon had said that he said to his executives and his employees that like, unless they make more money and get more cash, they would effectively be subject to that. I mean, listen, he, he ultimately bought this at a lot more than what he wanted to, but as one of the smartest men in the world, regardless of your opinion on him, I doubt that he's put sinking $44 billion into a company that's going to go out of business in less than a year. So I think they'll be fine, but there are definitely some serious concerns. Luckily, they're private companies, so it is not our problem anymore. <laughs> Yeah, that's the main thing, too. Like, it's, it's interesting to speculate. It's the only thing the Internet wants to talk about. But it's just really interesting to watch the overreactions and see exactly where that all goes. Um, I'm just, you know, glad I bought Twitter when I did. And I'm glad that uh, Elon very graciously got us out at that ridiculous price because it, deeply mismanaged company from the get go. So a lot to see here. I, I'm, I'm in it for the lulls as well. Like, it's just a funny time on Twitter right now. Again, it really just hasn't been for a long time. Um, so either way, just just. Keeping an eye on that, social media itself is also just a dumpster fire. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg is real glad that people like Sam Bankman-Fried exist because now all of the pressure is off of him to, as he begins to spend bill, like hundreds of billions of dollars a year on reality labs to try to catch up to TikTok. So very interesting time in all of those markets. But that puts us right here at the actual end here, Justin. Uh, any final thoughts from me before I go ahead and read the credits? Again, just an absolute whirlwind here in the market today. I think there's a... Uh... There's a lot to unpack. Uh, the world's, you know, Q3, Q4 has been nuts. Uh, it's kind of dwarfed things that are going on. That's all we talked about earlier this year, like Russia <laughs> and things like that. It's crazy. It's not even making headlines anymore. Um, but no, there's, there's a lot going on. It's fluid. As soon as you think you know something, something changes. So don't, I would say, suggestions for the, the rest of this year into early next year is do not have kind of like this this confirmation bias where you're looking for th just additional facts and opinions that just back what you're thinking. Uh, continue to be open, continue to realize that thesis is change, uh, and I'll put you in a good place if, uh, if you're comfortable taking on new pieces of information and, and adopting with it. And that's the most important thing, too. A lot of the folks who listen to this podcast and are in our Discord are, you know, in their first, like, two to three years of being investors. If this is your sort of first experience really paying attention to the market, watching your portfolio and actively building it, congratulations. You are investing at the most mayhem-filled time in decades. Like, this is going to be such a strong education for you moving forward. And the perspectives you develop and cultivate during this time will help you be a stronger investor during more 
you know, comparably calmer period. So I commend you for staying the course, especially after a year of just uh, difficult news, right? It's been a real, real wild one, but I've been really happy to sort of explore that with y'all here. As we, This is actually, Justin, did you know this is our 52nd episode? This is it. This is 52. We are uh, a year old now, officially with nice. consistent uploads. I know, right? We literally started talking consistently about the markets at the very top of the last bull run. We are nothing if folks with sick timing um so thanks for being with us for your audience um justin kramer ceo co-founder here at moby.co thanks so much for your time dude it's been a really wild run especially today audience if you have any questions for us you can feel free to hit us up at hello moby.co but for now it's a pretty good place to end it so as always folks we'd like to leave you with peace love and incremental gains everyone be well thank you so much